Thank you for reading God's word to us. I wanted to start this morning by saying thank you for showing up this morning to my second sermon in this series. I don't know if you realize it, but the first time I preached a series here, uh, I got to my second sermon and nobody showed up. I don't know what that means about my preaching, but I'm just happy that you're here this morning. So thanks for sharing. Uh, thanks for showing up at this time. Some people blame a COVID lockdown. I don't know what to think. But anyway, it's great to be here this morning. And I wanted to um, ask you a question. I wonder when the last time you went on a hike where you had to carry your own backpack. Now, I'm not talking about a hike where you just carry a few snacks. I'm talking about a hike that may have lasted either overnight, a couple days, or it was just one of those hikes where you had to consider what you put in your pack. It wasn't just snacks. It was actually things you need. Now, there's a common hiking principle. It's hiking 101. You pack your own pack, and what ends up in your pack ends up on your back. And the more stuff you put in your pack, the heavier your pack is. And so you only take what is necessary. You only take the essentials. You don't take what you might take if you were going down the coast on a holiday. If you don't need it, it doesn't go in your pack. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you before, but I've often gone on one of these hikes. It's happened to me a couple times where I head off on this hike with a group of people, and I turn around, and quite soon during the hike, I realize the people are getting slower and slower behind me. And I realize that they are carrying more weight than me. And you realize quite quickly that they are not going to make it to the end with the pack that they are wearing. They're slowing down. They're taking more rests. They're sitting there on the side of the the path. And you think to yourself, I've got to do something about this. So this may have happened to you. You offer to carry their pack for them. And the exact reversal happens. All of a sudden, you're the one at the back of the pack now. You're the one carrying the weight. You're the one that's slow. And here they are, running ahead, jumping over logs. And you just watch them. Off they go into the distance. I know for me, this happened one time. And we were, we were on a two-day hike, and I was hiking up a mountain to a hut. And I noticed they were not going to make it, so I offered to carry their pack for them. And off they went. They took off into the distance, and they disappeared. This person ended up reaching the hut, cooking dinner, eating dinner, and falling asleep in somebody else's sleeping bag before I even made it to the hut with their stuff. And as I'm hiking... I don't think, well, look at me. I'm actually thinking, this is not fair. This is not my pack. This is not my weight to carry. It's somebody else's weight. How is this fair? Well, today, we're in the second uh, sermon in a three-part series, specifically looking at God's suffering servant in Isaiah. It's considered to be the climax of the book of Isaiah. And last week I asked the question, how can God rescue? And today we're going to be looking at how can God save? And we know that the answer to all these questions is that he does it through the suffering servant. This week, it is the suffering servant 
who bears the weight of our grief and sorrows. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word explains to us that you have made a way for us to be accounted righteous. You have made a way for our sins and grief and sorrow to be taken from us. And you have done this all through your son, Jesus Christ. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you have done for us. In your name we pray, amen. Now our passage today begins with God introducing us to his servant. Isaiah 52, 13 starts by saying, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, who is God referring to? Who is the servant? Well, last week I just jumped in and said, that it's Jesus Christ who fulfills this. It's Jesus Christ who's the servant. But today, I don't want to jump straight to Jesus. I want us to consider how the Old Testament readers would have interpreted this passage. This passage is considered to be the gospel in Isaiah. Yes, it is the gospel for us today, but it's also the gospel for those who were in the Old Testament times. So who is the servant. Well, in the book of Isaiah, this is not the first time my servant has been seen or been mentioned. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8, it refers to the people of Israel as being my servant. It says, but you, Israel, my servant. So is this here referring to Israel? It is a possibility, Throughout the Old Testament, we've seen that God's chosen people are there to serve other nations. He has chosen a particular people. So is God referring to the Israelites as my servant who are going to fulfill his promises? Another option is found in Isaiah 49, verse 5, where the prophet Isaiah himself is called my servant. And he will bring Israel back to God. Is Isaiah the person that this is talking about? What we see is sometimes so far up to this point in Isaiah, sometimes it's the people that are called my servant, and sometimes it's Isaiah the prophet who has been called my servant. But the Old Testament readers would have really quickly realized that it could not be Isaiah that this is talking about, nor could it be um, Israel. It would become clear to the readers that the servant has come to serve them, to do what neither the nation or Isaiah himself could do. The servant will bear their griefs and carry their sorrows. And it's important to realize there's no particular name that's given to this servant other than the name, my servant. What he will do or what will happen to him is described in this passage. But it does not fit a description of any people group or person in the Old Testament. 
So what does this mean for the Israelites at this time? It means that those who were longing to see the fulfillment of God's promises would need to find somebody else to fulfill this, to fit this description. And that's exactly what they did. It's exactly what Isaiah's role was. And we know this uh, from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, it says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, what Peter is saying in this passage is that Isaiah understood that it was his role to work hard, to figure out what person and what time this prophecy would be fulfilled. He was to search and inquire carefully who the servant was. And the Israelites themselves as a people group would have to do the same thing. They did not know the servant by name. But they did have faith. Their faith was in the promise of God. That God would fulfill what he promised to Abraham, what he promised to Moses, and what he's continuing to promise to do through the prophets. And at this point in history, Isaiah's prophecy gave them the means by which God would ultimately fulfill his promises. Isaiah 52 and 53 foreshadows the gospel. How can God save? How can God save his people living in the Old Testament times? He can save them by providing the suffering servant. Their faith is in the future promise of a future savior. Now think with me for a minute about these people. They actually were brought out of Egypt. They'd wandered through the desert and they entered into the promised land. They had arrived. But when they're in the promised land, they find themselves judged and punished by God's wrath. And it says they're beaten up time and time and Again, and they're forced off to exile. And some of these readers would actually be coming back from exile and struggling to set up Jerusalem. And they're asking themselves, or they're asking the Lord, what is going on, Lord? How are you going to fulfill your promises? And God says, here is how I'm going to do it. Here is my servant. For the people in the Old Testament times, this passage provides them with the gospel, the good news of God's servant. It confirms that God's salvation is eternal and that it will be through a future servant, a suffering servant, that they will be saved. A servant that God reveals as acting wisely, as being high and lifted up, and as one that will be exalted, and as being the righteous one. 
Now follow through with me as we look at this passage a little bit more uh, specifically. I don't know if you've noticed as it was read, but there's a clear difference between the way in which God sees his servant and the way in which man sees the servant. So first of all, let's consider how God sees his servant. Start with me once again in 52 verse 13. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. God introduces us to his servant as the one who shall act wisely. This can also be translated as he shall prosper. He is the one who God has chosen to exalt, to be lifted up, and to accomplish his work. And in 53 verse 11, it says, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. It's interesting that God doesn't actually make him righteous. And it's interesting that what he does doesn't make him righteous. He is the righteous one. God describes him as the righteous one. He is the exalted one. He is the righteous one. And look what happens in verse 15. So this is 52, 15. Read with me. It says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told to them they see. And that which they have not heard they understand. Through what happens to the servant, through God's fulfillment of his promises, through the servant, kings will shut their mouths. God shows us this incredible picture of who the servant is who he is as the righteous one, and he calls him my servant. But in chapter 53, starting in verse 1, we see a different description of this servant. It's a transition to how man sees the servant. 53 verse 1 says, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This section, it begins with a question, and the question, the answer to this question is implied. For those who have eyes to see, the arm of the Lord has been revealed. What does this mean? It means that God's work is clearly revealed through his servant. But unfortunately, this has not been the case for those reading this in the Old Testament. We know that for the people of Israel, virtually nobody has believed. We know this, and it says this uh, right at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is called, he says, Here I am, Lord, send me. And the Lord says, Go and make the heart of this people fat, because they will not listen, they will not understand, and they will not perceive. And we see that's exactly what happens in this passage here in 53, verse 2. It says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. There is nothing about the servant's beauty that is desirable to man. It's even to the point where men hide their faces from him, and he is despised and rejected. And in verse 6, it says, All of us like sheep, we've gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We have turned away from God, and we say, We can do it on our own. Now, this passage reminds me of a kid's TV show, Bob the Builder. My son, Atticus, he used to watch it, and he used to call it Bob Boo Digga. Now, Bob the Builder, if you haven't heard of it, it's a TV show, kids' TV show, about a builder. I liked it. Now, during the show, there always seemed to be something that went wrong. And so the catchphrase for the show was, can he fix it? And the answer was, yes, he can. That's exactly right. Can he fix it? Yes, he can. And I think we all have a bit of Bob the Builder's confidence in us. Can we fix it? Yes, we can. We can do it on our own. We believe the answer to can we fix it is yes, we can. But the truth is that we have turned everyone to his own ways. We can't fix it. We can't do it on our own. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all rebellious towards God. And we looked at this last week at what happened to the Old Testament, the Israelites. They turned away from God, their creator. They didn't understand what God was doing for them. So they looked to the nations and they were afraid. They did not understand what God was doing for them. So they looked elsewhere for their comfort. And we do the same thing. And the people were rebuked. And they were rebuked by God because of the way that they acted towards him. They were proud. They were arrogant. And they put their trust and hope in man. And when you put your trust and hope in man, you end up fearing man. And they came under the wrath of God. And last week we saw that God was comforting them because they feared man. He was comforting them even though they had forgotten him and they had turned their own way. They had turned from trusting in him. In his anger, God comforted his people. And today in this passage, we see a similar paradox. God is providing his servant who is being despised and rejected by man. The very person that they are hiding their faces from is the person who will be the sacrifice. The man they despise will be the means by which they are made righteous. God says, behold my servant. We say he is unworthy. God says he will be high and lifted up. He will pay the price for your sins. And we reject him. God says, 
I will substitute him in your place. And so we get to the heart of the gospel. Read with me chapter 53, starting at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Instead of us having to deal with our own griefs and sorrows, he takes them. Instead of us having to pay for our transgressions, he is pierced for them. Instead of us having to suffer for our iniquities, he is crushed for them. And as this is happening, I don't know if you noticed it, but what do we get? Look at verse 5 again. It says, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We get peace and healing. What God is doing is substituting his servant in our place. And the weight of our grief, the weight of our sorrows, is taken off us and put on him. He bears the weight and the cost of sin. But what is most astonishing to me is actually what God does to his servant. Read with me verse 5 again. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. And also 53 verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. God destroys his servant. Now I want to flip to the New Testament. I want to fl- if you've got your Bibles, please flip with me to uh, Luke verse, uh, chapter 22. Luke 22, verse 37. This is Jesus speaking, starting at Luke 22, verse 37. It says, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 53, verse 12. Jesus, when he's speaking to his disciples, explains to them that he is the one who will fulfill this prophecy that we've read in Isaiah. And now I also want you to flip uh, with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26. 
If you don't have your Bibles, just listen along to the story. I'm going to read it to us. It's the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and it's Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26. It says, Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Hmm. And the spirit of the Lord said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask, does the prophet say this? About himself or about somebody else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture. He told him the good news about Jesus. Jesus is the one who is crushed. Jesus is the one who is the suffering servant. And back in Isaiah 53 verse 9 It tells us that Jesus was innocent. He didn't deserve it. In 53 verse 9, it says, Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. How can God save? He can save because he provided the innocent Savior, the innocent servant, Jesus Christ, God's Son who died for undeserving people. Undeserving people like those in the Old Testament. Undeserving people like those in Jesus' day and us today, here and now, who are still undeserving. To sin against God means that we are guilty. To be guilty is to stand condemned under God's judgment. And because we are all sinners, we are all accountable to God. But through Jesus' perfect, obedient life on earth, he was able to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And it was God's will to crush him. It was God's will to crush him to pay the penalty for our sin and to bring us into a right relationship with him. And read with me again 53 verse 11. It says, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. God's servant, who is high and lifted up, at the beginning of this passage, 
is given a portion with the many, with the strong, and with the great. Jesus Christ is once again exalted to his rightful place as the righteous one. Now, there's a few implications for us that I would like to finish with. The first one, well, there's no easy way to put this. You will stand before Jesus one day. And without accepting what God has done through his servant, you will get what you deserve. And what you deserve is judgment and hell. If you do not accept what God's righteous servant is offering you today, the Bible explains to us that you will stand before the servant. And at that point, there is nothing you can do or say that will change anything because it will be the servant who speaks. And he will either welcome you in to his eternal kingdom or he will say to you, I never knew you, depart from me. And if that's what he says to you in that moment, he will not be your substitute. He will not carry your burdens or your sin. And so turn to him now and trust in him to do what he has promised to do. And I want you to do that right now. It is a conversation that you need to have between you and God. And if you've never done that before or you don't know what to do, I'd love you to come and speak to either myself or Steve after the service, and we would love to talk to you about it. For those of us who know Jesus, we still need to come before God and say to him, I have sinned. Repentance is understanding that we have done the wrong thing and to bring it before God. Now, oftentimes, instead of doing this, we do the opposite. We actually rationalize our sin. I know I've done this. We're all, um, we all do this at various times. We rationalize our sin by saying, I am a victim. If you know what I've been through or what people have done to me, or how badly I have been treated, you would cut me some slack. It is not my fault. And we blame others for our sin. And we blame others for our grief. And we blame others for our pain. But this doesn't achieve anything. It just allows us to wallow in that feeling of guilt and shame. And when you do this, you actually deny God of bearing the weight of the guilt and the shame, like it says in this passage. Friends, do not allow man or any aspect of this world to come between you and God. What God does in substituting his servant in our place might not be easy for you to accept. You may think that you can do something or you should do something to participate in this. But I want you to bring you back to this passage and look at our participation in this passage. We're the ones who reject him. We're the ones who found him to have no beauty. We are the ones 
who are in need of the sacrifice. We are the ones for the reason for the sacrifice. Friends, do not add anything to the gospel to give yourself credit for something that you did not achieve. God cares so much for you that he crushes his servant in your place. 